2: Hey, welcome back to Distracted. Uh, how's it going?
3: Oh, sorry. Wait, wait, wait. It's am I'm not. I'm not prepared.
2: No, you are.
3: No, I'm not. We're so in. Um, This is This is
2: the intro of Josh Harwood, okay, okay, the okay. clinical psychologist. He's a chartered... What does chartered mean? Exactly. Clinical <laughs> psychologist specialising with working with children and young people and families. Uh, and we've got him on to talk first signs. So the very first signs of ADHD, we chatted about it last week. And this week, we've got an expert on Dr. Josh Harwood to talk about all things ADHD and noticing you ADHD and the chat is wicked. Hey I'm Jack and I'm Kat and this is a podcast called
3: Distracted
2: all about ADHD ADHD and now you say
0: (laughs) welcome welcome. (laughs)
2: Joshua Harwood, hello. 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 How's it going? Yeah, good, thanks. You are an expert with all things ADHD and children...
4: Yeah, I think, yeah, I like to think so. That's yeah, right. but... Doctor as well. I should have said doctor, uh, Yeah, right? Dr. Josh Harwood.
2: Sorry, yeah. that is that offensive? Is that uh, like... No, no. If I was Dr. Jack, I would be telling it. My friends <laughs> yeah, would be calling me doctor. doctor. <laughs> it's doctor, actually. Yeah. yeah, it'd be on your credit card. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Excuse me.
4: <laughs> so I'm Dr. Josh Harwood and I'm a clinical psychologist. I am currently the clinical director of Harwood Child Psychology, which is a specialist child and adolescent mental health service. But we particularly specialize in what's called the neurodevelopmental assessments. So that's assessing for things like ADHD, um, autism, learning difficulties. And I kind of developed those skills from working in national and specialist neurodevelopmental assessment services in the NHS. So that was teaching other Staff and clinicians, how to work with children with ADHD and autism, um, how to assess for it, how to diagnose it. So yeah, so that's how I really developed. And and you were in it, and it's just like ten years, weren't you? Quite a while. Yeah, I would say so. In the NHS overall, yeah, for over a decade. But as a qualified, and you're at the top of the triangle, so you are well, the perfect guys to speak
2: to. So Josh, if I was a ten-year-old kid, right, and I come mm. into your clinic and you know I've got ADHD, and you're about to tell me, and I've got no idea really what ADHD is, Mm. how would you explain it to me? What is ADHD?
4: So I certainly would not be starting by coming, by having a conversation about symptoms. I would actually kind of reverse back and have a conversation with a child and and think with them about how actually humans and children evolved to be living, how they actually were a million years ago, 500,000 years ago. Mm. Um, it's only in the last 150 years or so, um, Victorian style schooling that we've expected children to sit there for nine hours a day at a desk, um, copying things off a blackboard. Yeah. Um, that's, completely, that's completely not how children have ever particularly been wired to be. Whereas if you think about how humans lived a million years ago, we were in small communities, we were hunter gatherers, we were always on the move, we were mostly nomadic. Being super active, energetic, you would have been absolutely celebrated in that community. You would have been the hunter. You would have been the gatherer. You would have been the scout. You we were so born so the true. wrong time. Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you wouldn't have been. So, and, and I'm not. This is, and I will talk about it more. I'm not invalidating the label to say, well, therefore, something like ADHD or autism or something like completely doesn't exist. Yeah. But what I am saying is, is that schooling as we kind of know it has been designed by that middle 50% of kids who were then adults who can sit there for 10 hours a day who don't find it difficult to sit there and copy and and learn in that way but then if you're the 5% at either end who who does struggle with that because they've got just a different way of being yeah they end up getting labeled as being ADHD because they're they're too active while and we also we do need to help the children because we're also not about to change the schooling system in The ten by the time the child comes in, the ten years that they've got left at school.
3: Yeah, rather than making them sort of like close off the things that aren't working within the school environment, it's kind of like helping them to flourish and like find ways that serve them, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, like, if you were so for a teacher or a parent, how can they help the child to thrive in a school environment?
4: The number one thing I would say is understand ADHD, understand ADHD, understand ADHD, because the parents know the child. They know, they know that I don't pretend having done a sort of a three hour assessment with a child that I know this child better than the parent knows them. Mm. We know sort of about ADHD. And if the parent can learn or the school can learn about how ADHD works, they'll be able to see the world through that child's eyes. Yes. They'll be able to understand why they find certain things difficult and certain things easy and why they're more inclined to be, why certain things trigger them. Mm-hmm. Why... They're more emotionally sort of impulsive and volatile. And if you can understand it and understand ADHD, you can then piece together the bits of that that fit with that child. You'll have a much better understanding of the child. And then the solutions flow relatively simply. If we can get schools particularly to understand ADHD, they'll then be able to understand the child. And then they'll have the strategies will start becoming clearer of what they need to do. Yeah, does that make definitely. Sense? And
3: I suppose also then it means that their initial reaction to anything that an ADHD child does isn't frustration, because they'll be like, "I understand why you're doing this now. I'm not just like yeah. you're disobedient." They can see that there's a reason for it, and they can try and work with that, yeah. rather than just immediately telling them off.
4: Yeah. And so many parents tell me that same thing. They just say, as soon as they, once you have a diagnosis, and they maybe go through our sort of program of UNDOF because we've got a program for um, parents of newly diagnosed ADHD children. And so once they do that, they just see the child in a different light. They're not doing these things on purpose. Once Mm. you feel some, when you think somebody's doing something on purpose or to be manipulative or just to sort of be attention seeking or something like that, if you can just sort of view it, if you, when you understand it, I think just the emotional temperature calms down a bit and then everyone feels a bit, can feel a bit calmer, but it's certainly not easy for parents. Yes, yeah,
3: definitely.
2: I've got some stats to read out. Go on. Are you ready for this? Yeah. According to ADHD UK about four percent of boys and less than one percent of girls have ADHD. Do girls have different symptoms to boys? I've read that they do. But it's basically just been more research into ADHD with boys than there are girls. So
4: girls are sort of going under the radar. How much do you know about that? Is it true? Are some people being missed? Other stats say maybe it's two to one boy to girl no. ratio, but it's it's definitely higher. It's definitely diagnosed higher in boys than in girls. And I suppose that raises a, a, a the question of, actually is there actually a difference or mm. is it just the girls are being missed and actually if you could test for absolutely everyone and everything it would be the same and mm. I, I don't actually know the answer to that but it's certainly missed a lot more in girls and we know it's diagnosed a lot later yeah in girls traditionally
3: because between us for example jack there was some idea that you might have it when you were younger right
2: yeah
3: but for me it was never really i wouldn't have ever thought about that i would have it yeah um But like looking back now at times during school, I can see how things would have come up and how that might have been related to it. Yeah. But like, I think the things that I was struggling with didn't necessarily come across as like, oh, we should check if she's got ADHD. And because it was, it felt a bit like at school, you look out for the hyperactive kid Hmm. and then you follow the path of diagnosing them. But I wasn't that, you know, I was struggling with doing homework, keeping up with work and losing things and all that stuff.
2: Just, uh, I don't know if you'd know this, but does does testosterone have any like? Does it affect ADHD in any way? Like, would it make you more likely to be hyperactive if you've got more testosterone? Mm. I'm just well, totally plucking out. Also, you've
4: got Yeah. Oh. But that's the kind of because I know you've talked about your ADHD journey and that the way that's when I want to talk when you're saying when I what would I say to a child who I wanted to explain it to? You've just done a really nice demonstration now of just. A creative random thought that has just come into your head and it's not the kind of thing that the average person that wouldn't have even just come into everyone's head mm. so actually it's so i would try i would really try and highlight some of those lovely skills and talents that come from it oh you of... can come on again <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly but it's
4: that kind of like originality of thought but in to to accurately answer your question no i don't know about a link between testosterone and ADHD but mm. but I think some of the reason why ADHD is picked up earlier in boys is because of what you're describing there is a kind of a long known thing about the difference between externalizing behavior versus internalizing behavior I don't know how much you know about that but it's um, well I'll explain it anyway it's the idea that boys traditionally externalize their their feelings in their bed so when they're struggling it comes out in external behaviors hitting Mm. aggression shouting kind of things that are kind of loud in your face that kind of stuff whereas traditionally and boys and girls both do both but traditionally it's more common for girls to internalize their difficulties and that can look a lot more like um low self-esteem shyness anxiety withdrawn worried things like that and that's not to say the boys aren't feeling that as well but typically so that's why i think you a lot less see the hyperactivity side with with girls than with boys mm-hmm. and then it's less likely to be picked up in schools i think that's where because a lot of the time parents might be sort of pulling their hair out but it takes a school to mm. go this child is xyz i think you should go and get them go and seek yeah. more support it's much easier if a, if
2: if home, it's remember- when it's becoming a trouble for the school, right? When yeah. when when the child is like being becoming kind of troublesome for the school, it's like, oh, okay, this kid actually needs some assistance here. They're holding other kids back, or they're really kind of holding themselves back. Yeah, and that's when they notice it. A little yeah, bit more. exactly. But mm-hmm. if you've
4: got a quiet, and you see this with autism as well as ADHD, that if you've got a a relatively quiet, academically able enough child who doesn't kick up a massive fuss it sort of goes along with things teachers are so busy with the boys who are lobbing chairs out the windows that they they're just like mm, okay they're fine so they yeah. just slip under the radar for yeah. years and years and years. By, it's fine. Yeah. That's,
2: exa- that's exactly what happened to both it's, of us. Yeah,
4: well, I to know, well, Yeah, so what was your experiences of that then?
2: So I I was told that I had ADHD from like friends through all of school, okay. but not not my teachers because I was loud, I was disruptive, I was kind of always on report, but I was okay academically. I was never. T- Struggling that much, and I did pipe down sometimes when I know I needed to. Okay, and so I did slip. I slipped under the radar because we had a bunch of boys in our in our year that were exactly what you're saying, like loud, throwing, literally throwing chairs around the room. And so I slipped under the radar until more recently. And Kat, you you know, you had something similar. You said you know you kind of pushed it within.
3: Yeah, definitely. Because basically, my brother was diagnosed with ADD when it was just ADD while I was at school. But my experience was only of like his struggles. And I never really considered mm. that I was actually having very similar struggles. But maybe wasn't very open about them because I didn't want to be another person having those struggles, mm. you
4: know? That is tough, like feeling like you're you're getting by, but it's still it's still difficult, isn't yeah. it? But it's like someone else's needs are trumping yours. And that mm. could have been your brothers, but it also could have been people who are more disruptive mm. in exactly. the class. Yeah. But also with girls, there's I was reading the other day about that kind of the um almost like the fizziness in the head, the busyness, mm. that's like having your thoughts going everywhere. There's sort of a, an idea that that could be kind of like the female, that could be hyperactivity
2: yeah,
4: kind of in I've the brain. This. Whereas like if you're fidgeting all the time and your leg's always on the go and you're up and down out your seat, that's kind of, you can easily see it, but it's much harder to, mm. where do you put that on it? My brain's just going boop, 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 the whole time.
3: yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's
2: so true. This external, internal thing. Because, like, you see me, I'm always doing this with yeah. my legs. Yeah, yeah, And but th- imagine that is going on in your head.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Literally. Is it not not in yours? Well, because not- you had it
2: out. I, maybe because I, I, sh- I shake to sort of focus yeah you know? true is this true because i've read about this like when you shake it, it's to like appease part of your brain that needs that stimulation of movement or n- newness and so when you do that you can kind of go yeah that's doing something
4: and now i can focus is that true there's a, a really not well understood bit of adhd is how is the sensory systems and how it links in with adhd and it's something that we're learning a lot more about and all neurodiversity has a big sensory component with autism for example it's actually one of the core diagnostic criteria so you have there's sensory differences with ADHD it's not considered part of it and yet I've yet to meet an ADHD child who doesn't have some kind of sensory differences and by Mm. that that can be what the fidgeting is doing so many children with ADHD can concentrate just not in the way that a teacher expects. They want to fiddle. You say you just like put blue to all those fidget toys. Actually, they can look like, I mean, don't get me wrong. Sometimes they become part of the distraction and teachers are pulling their hair out because the kids are way more (laughs) interested in the fidget spinner than the... Mm -hmm. But in a lot of the time, I recommend as part of my reports and recommendations that most children should go and have an occupational therapy assessment with with somebody who's kind of what we call sensory integration trained because mm. if you put certain things in place like you say you've just learned you've just you've just done that naturally if I just kind of fiddle, wiggle my foot around get some of that energy out I can focus but there's other ways in class so there's lots of things that can be done that kind of gives that child that sensory feedback mm. that then allows them to focus mm. so yeah I think you are describing something that is a real thing but I think it's not super known about and it's not considered part of the core diagnostic of ADHD but as far as I'm concerned it should be.
3: Yeah Mm. and that kind of goes back to the understanding of the teachers and parents to be like actually maybe they do need this thing they're not just being annoying and playing with something like it actually is helping them.
1: Yeah.
4: plushcare.com slash weight loss
2: if you were a head teacher of a school and you and you could get anything past anything through with your adhd knowledge what would you change about the school that you're teaching and what are the kind of major failings at the moment in what you see in school schooling with with adhd at the moment
4: all children just need to be able to demonstrate that they have done the learning and they've got the ability. It doesn't matter how they get that across. And I think so many children with neurodiversity underachieve because of the traditional way schools do Mm -hmm. things. And at the moment, I'm thinking particularly about exams because lots of the children I've assessed have just coming through, have just finished their GCSEs, have just finished their A-levels and we've kind of been working with them all. I would say the people I've met with ADHD tend to be very good verbally, very good creatively, If you, but can sometimes struggle to organize those same ideas that are really thoughtful down in an organized way on a page. That's not intelligence or ability just because you can get it down on a page. If you could have an oral discussion on a lot of the topics and things that have gone on in class, I really think that would level the playing field. And I don't know if that matches up with your experiences. It might, it might mm. not. But social connectedness is so important for so many kids mm. with ADHD. Um, Not doing things in isolation by yourself, making it social, making it active. Another thing I've noticed about kids with ADHD generally is that actually a much bigger focus on real life, on practical things. Mm. They thrive. Yeah. It's actually five to 18 when they're in school they kind of don't always thrive and then I made to feel like I, I'm not doing well I can't do this and then get out and just get a job that fits their skill set yeah and they suddenly take off because they're so actually if schools could not just focus on maths English sitting there but if they could for some children or in some schools I don't know exactly how it would work but could have a greater focus on practical things real life
3: yeah
0: I
4: think you'd have a lot of kids thriving a lot more mm-hmm can i ask you a
2: question about trauma so i've heard dr gabor mate i think that's how you say second name yeah, I think yeah. So. and he's talked about how young people that experience trauma it shapes them a way of coping with the trauma is by being distracted by it and so you end up building up like neuro pathways to distract yourself from whatever's going on whatever pain it is and in that way you kind of reinforce this it, it becomes a coping mechanism to get away from the trauma uh, and that's how ADHD can develop how much do you know about that is that accurate are we sort of just all escaping some sort of form of trauma from a childhood and now we're in this sort of pattern that's that keeps going
4: would you does that match up with an experience you've had well sort
2: of my my parents had a divorce at 10 years old and it was a bit rocky and then I got a stepdad who wasn't very nice and that was probably for a few years like two three years from 13 to 15 so it's hard to know I can't even really fully remember what what was going on but I just know that I was definitely trying to be distracted from it like it Mm. wasn't so yeah I guess so it would it makes sense to me which is why I think I'm asking the question because I don't know if it's just
4: a coincidence or if it's yeah a real thing yeah yeah I mean I'm really sorry you had that experience kind of growing up it's not something you would have been equipped to deal with as there's nothing about a 10 year old a 12 year old or 15 year old who is should be expected to be able to deal with those kind of separations that Mm. is that is incredibly stressful I think it's made doubly stressful when it involves parents because at that age whilst kids and teenagers are getting a little bit more independent they're still very big on what we call co-regulation you're not expected just to be independent but if it's your parents that is the source of the stress or they are incredibly stressed themselves because of something that's going on I think there probably is a more I've just got to figure out a way of dealing with this. Yeah. it was a, It's a survival mechanism. Humans, if there's one thing they are really good at, is surviving. Yeah. At the time, you or someone else who's going through that does what they need to do to survive. They use the coping mechanisms, so essentially they don't feel like they're imploding emotionally.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: I think there's more and more evidence coming out. And I know Dr. Mate talks about it quite a lot, but I also don't know if it's based in hardcore science yet that does not mean it doesn't exist it mm. just means it's very hard to show when you have this kind of trauma this a exact directing. thing happens to the brain and this for
2: it from your experience
4: yeah you've seen loads how many kids thousands
2: probably well, thousands yeah i've seen thousands ha- of kids and is, yeah. is there like a, a link between have you seen that a lot of them have had some sort of trauma that have, might have affected it
4: so i would say of the kids who have had some kind of very significant trauma. and It greatly increases the chance of having mental health difficulties later mm. on. Now, ADHD in of itself is not considered a mental health difficulty, it's a neurodevelopmental difficulty. But yes, there would be higher rates of ADHD in, in children who have had significant traumas, for sure. But at the same time, it's important to remember that there'll be more kids who have traumas, who then don't go on to develop anything mm. difficult later on so it's not it's certainly not a um a deftly predictive thing mm. so whilst it increases the chances it's it, it certainly there's loads of kids who have all these different things happen to them and actually don't necessarily go on to struggle and understanding why that is, is very important as well. It's way more common for there not to be a trauma history. Right. Mm-hmm. So yes. so
2: you're saying it's, because I'm trying to understand if it's like nature-nurture sort of thing, you know, yeah. is it like, is ADHD, was it laying dormant in me waiting to come or has something happened
4: which has just sparked it? Yeah, but, that, but then that's, Dr. Gabor Maté talks a lot about that as well and saying that this dichotomy of nature versus nurture is a false dichotomy because actually human children are the one thing that their nurture Mm -hmm. their genes code them for is to be adaptable to the environment they find themselves in
2: Mm -hmm. because if you
4: think about human and children occupy every continent on the planet in all sorts of different Mm -hmm. scenarios different different so you will so the, the whole idea that it was always there you might you have a predisposition to adapt to your environment So actually your environment changes your genes and can change the pathway. So it's not just as simple as saying that was biological or that was nurture, because it's both, because your environment changes the biology and the biology can change how you adapt to the environment.
3: If someone was had it biologically and they'd inherited ADHD, and then if they were in like some sort of fairy tale upbringing then it might not come out as much
4: you might have a propensity towards it they talk a lot in in child psychology about orchids and dandelions I don't know if you've ever heard of that dandelions they sort of grow anywhere you see dandelions growing in the cracks of pavements yes. in walls you try and get you try you try and stop the dandelions growing and they're going to grow <laughs> they're going to be fine mm-hmm. whereas orchids are really hard to grow they need a very they need a very specific soil type, conditions, environment, everything. Mm. But when you get it right, they're the most beautiful, and they and they yes. and they thrive, and they sing. And children can be a bit like that as well. They can't really work out why like some children you can literally throw them through the washer. Just they very go, resilient. They go and they just somehow just seem to do all right. Mm. And other children, you get it. If things are a little bit stressful, they just they don't thrive. But get it right, get their environment right they thrive. And and one theory yeah. of ADHD is, is a little bit like that because it, if you were going along in your life and everything was absolutely fine and then suddenly age 17, you suddenly started having difficulties with concentrating and organizing and all of those things. And there was nothing really before. That by the current definitions is not ADHD. Mm. Because it's neurodevelopmental, there has to be evidence from the developmentally sensitive periods of your childhood. So the current definition is you need some evidence before the age of 12. It doesn't have to have been causing you loads and loads of difficulties before the age of 12, because maybe you had a really supportive family and supportive school, and the demands weren't above what you were. When able to not do. when you
2: can't necessarily notice a problem, you don't
1: yeah.
4: even see it in yourself. Yeah. It's not yeah. coming exactly. out. Yeah. So you might with hindsight go, actually, yeah, there were quite a lot of this stuff we're talking about now was there yes. from a young age and it only came up. But if it was like if you were going along, you had a traumatic bereavement or something happened later on and suddenly you just you were flush with all of the symptoms of ADHD, there's something going on and it really needs to be taken seriously, but you probably wouldn't diagnose ADHD. Mm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah
3: we've kind of briefly touched on the positives of ADHD in children. So what would you say are like some of the things of like, you know, there's always there's a lot of like putting them down, getting frustrated. What are some of the like really great things about children with ADHD?
4: Yeah, I mean, I would say I have the most fun and the best connections with children who are neurodiverse in my, in my clinic with ADHD, or otherwise, I'd say they're can be so interesting. I mean, the exact like the the way their brain works. I'm just like in absolute stitches. I just <laughs> don't understand how you've gone from that link to that link, and it's and it's genius. And it's they can be so funny, so high energy, really driven. The hyper focus thing. That's where there's a bit of a misnomer with ADHD. That I've just got no focus. <laughs> Actually, a lot more. As we're getting to understand ADHD, a lot more people are realizing it's more about. Being able to decipher what to focus on, find your yes. thing,
2: finding the thing that like really excites yeah. you, and then yeah. you are locked. I mean, yeah. for me, I just like
4: boom. Once mm-hmm. I find what I enjoy, it's like yeah, I lose but way time more and... than probably other people. Like right? that level of passion and that yeah. energy you can give to something that you're interested in is. I mean, you tell me if it's different for you, but it, but for many kids, they tell me it's that's incredible, and they yeah, end definitely. up so when they're able to choose the thing they're interested in often once they leave school, unfortunately, because at school, you've got to do certain things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They can thrive and change the world. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. I've I've talked about it in previous episodes, but I was really fortunate to sort of figure out what I liked early on, which was funny enough, talking rubbish in front of a microphone (laughs) from like 15 years old. And so that was my thing. And, you know, along the way i'd like lose jobs at pubs all the time like i got fired from like four or five different jobs like part-time things just because i just would be very scatty with it you know i wasn't really i didn't really care about it but i've always sort of had this radio podcasty thing going on in the background and that's been i've been really fortunate i think for that like it's a big privilege to be able to Mm -hmm. find something i enjoy there must be so many people out there that don't actually know what they like
3: and still you
2: know they could be 28 29 and 30 whatever 40 and not know what Mm. they're passionate about have you got any advice for people that maybe are similar age to us that who who are struggling of knowing what to do but but you know have they must have passion somewhere is that
4: is this something that you would say to them well we've got to be realistic about what they might enjoy and it's very I'm very keen, you never ever put a ceiling on a child and Mm. you go, they're not, whether special educational needs or whatever, you never go, they're not going to be able to do this. They're not going to be able to do this. So just focus down there. But I also say, let's be realistic. We know you're, are they going to want to be an accountant? Are they going to want to be a librarian? Possibly not. Possibly, if that's what they really enjoy, great, go for it. But are they the kind of person who's going to want to sit down in front of a spreadsheet for... 10 because some people love that. That is their skill set. Mm-hmm. They yeah. want to do that, but it might not be your child. So it's about kind of do I want to be a, a chef or do I want to be a work behind a bar? And actually maybe it's thinking deeper, like, right, do I like working with people? Do I yeah. do I like to be active? Do I want to be sat at a desk? Do I want to be more on my feet? And actually the job then, the actual specific what the job is might not matter as Mm -hmm. much as like, right, this is because we talk a lot about kind of values work in psychology, and it might be good. Some of your listeners might go and speak to a psychologist, or I mean, if it's not sort of mental healthy, maybe something like, I don't know much as much about it, but like life coaching or something like that, because you can dig out some of those core values that are not just more surface level, like, I like numbers, or I like film. Mm. It's like, what do do I value sort of connection? Do I value all those different things that can then help you work out Definitely. but no my gut feeling is that something that involves connection something that involves novelty changing things mm. doing deals I think kids with ADHD can some of them I just some of me they'd be like incredible like entrepreneurs and business mm. people like, yeah they're negotiating so with me and like ground. yeah,
3: yeah. Just like, exactly thinking outside the box and fresh ideas
4: yeah
2: give a shout out to your company, really just sing its praises. And we're going to put all the links in the description below as well. So if anyone wants to uh, find out more about it, they can just go on the description and then just click it.
4: Yeah, and it's a, and it's not just me. I mean, you'll see on our website is in the links, but it's uk, And in there, you can see all the different specialist assessments we do, as well as the different things and mental health difficulties we can treat, whether it's for therapy or whether it's just for a neurodevelopmental assessment. And we've got a really experienced team now. So it's not just me and you'll get all of them are highly qualified kind of experts. We do a lot of what we call screening appointments as well. So for people who aren't sure whether they want to go down and go straight in and dive straight in with a full assessment, which can be expensive. We do a one hour with me or one of the other expert clinicians where you kind of just meet, talk it all through, you do, you do some screening, you do some questionnaires, you we do like kind of like a mini assessment. And whilst you don't get a diagnosis at the end of that, we can by the end of that, we can then go, yeah, you really need an assessment, or actually this kind of assessment would be better for you. Actually, and and quite commonly where they might go, actually, no, this this is more kind of emotional. That's going on. This isn't ADHD. Mm. Don't don't waste your money on a full assessment. Go down this route. So so we can give some guidance as well through those screening appointments. But yeah, we can do the we can do the full assessments as well. So yeah, please do get in touch. Amazing. Amazing.
2: So if you want the best most thorough assessments in the entire <laughs> universe, you now know where to go and you know where to click. If you go in the description, it's there. Thank you so so much Thank coming you on the so podcast. Much. Really really appreciate Thank, yeah, it. it's been
4: great. Thanks. <laughs>
2: Okay, we're going to stop right there. That was an amazing chat with Josh. So next week, we are going to be back and we're going to talk all things childhood. What it was like being a child and learning maybe that you've got ADHD. And the week after that, we're going to speak to Josh again about childhood. Maybe, sure, maybe he's wearing the same clothes as the first episode. Maybe we're wearing the same clothes. And sure, sure, our hair looks exactly the same. You know, but was it recorded on the same time? No, no, I don't think so. We just like wearing the same stuff, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Totally normal. Again, loads of words from Kat. Okay, Uh, we'll see you next week. Uh, Kat's going to go for a sleep. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so sorry. I don't know where my brain's gone. That's okay.